Father, it is with such great joy that we sing hallelujah to you because Christ is risen and it changes everything. We pray that you will make us aware of your presence here as we worship you today. Fill our hearts with your spirit and our minds with the truth of who you are. Inspire us as we worship you, as we connect with each other, as we open our hearts to your spirit. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. Good morning. My name is Rose Jones, and I attend the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Last month, I went on a mission trip to the country of Cuba. It was one of the hardest and best weeks of my life. I went with a group called Wheels for the World, which is an outreach of Johnny and Friends, which was founded by Christian quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata. A team of people from the United States worked with a team of Cuban pastors and also the National Cuban Disability Organization, and we distributed wheelchairs, and the pastors also distributed Bibles. My role on the trip was to be the team writer, which means that I kept a daily log of our activities, and I also interviewed Cuban families that came to get wheelchairs through a translator and wrote down their stories. I'd like to tell you the story of Jeffrey, and we have a picture of him coming up. Jeffrey's the one in the wheelchair there. I first met Jeffrey at the welcome ceremony on Saturday that the Cubans held for the U.S. team. Jeffrey was wheeled into the room in an oversized wheelchair. His body was leaning back, so his brother helped him by placing a hand on Jeffrey's shoulder and pushing him into an upright position in the chair. A guitar was placed in Jeffrey's fragile hands, and he began to play and sing a beautiful love song that he had composed. His skeletal arms gently held the guitar as he tenderly serenaded the audience. God's presence in the room was palpable. It was as if God said, This young man is precious in my sight. He is beautiful and treasured. On Monday, Jeffrey returned to be fitted for a new wheelchair. Okay, the next photo. And Jeffrey's mom is in the green shirt in the back. Jeffrey's mom said, It's very hard to get a wheelchair in Cuba. I try to put on a strong face, but sometimes it is hard. And she cried. The Wheels for the World team skillfully selected an appropriately sized wheelchair and carefully customized foam cushions that would hold Jeffrey in a comfortable, upright position. The entire team, including Jeffrey and his mother, beamed with happiness when the wheelchair was complete. Thank you, thank you, Jeffrey's mother said, and she hugged the team in grateful appreciation. Jeffrey's wheelchair was one of 220 wheelchairs that was distributed throughout the week. Every family that received a wheelchair also received a Bible, and they heard the gospel message presented by one of the Cuban pastors. 
Some of the people would kiss the Bible when they received it or hold it to their heart. One of the Cuban pastors said that he's had people knock on his door before and say, Are you a pastor? And he says, Yes. And they say, I want a Bible. And he doesn't always have Bibles to give to them because they're scarce. The pastor said, It is a time of hunger. It is a time of harvest. The Wheels for the World team t-shirt says it's not about the wheels. While our goal is to provide the gift of mobility, our most important goal is to share the message of Jesus Christ. In closing, I'd like to say thank you to the church. There are goers and senders in mission trips, and both are equally important and blessed by God. I'd like to thank the church for pouring into me before I went on this trip, for praying for me, encouraging me, supporting me financially, and welcoming me home. I could not have done this trip without you. I talk about my trip to Cuba, but really this was our trip to Cuba, because it's the body of Christ together we ministered to the Cuban people. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. We appreciate that. And uh, we uh, continue to pray for people in need in places of the world that uh, we may not be thinking all that much about. But God is certainly at work in the country of Cuba. There are uh, other things in your bulletin to uh, remember. Not only has Rose gone on this trip, but she's also our point person for Operation Christmas Child. And today is the uh, last day to turn in shoeboxes, and those will get distributed, taken to the next place this week. So uh, you still have throughout the day, if you haven't, didn't bring it with you this morning, to drop them off at the church typically in the back foyer, uh, in the community room foyer, and we'll get those today. Also, a couple of uh, inserts in your bulletin. Uh, Next Sunday is uh, about the Thanksgiving food drive. It's been a yearly practice for a long time, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. uh, Collect food for our food pantry. We've been helping, as you can see, a whole lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of needs, and those are ongoing. So any help you can give would be great, and we'll collect that food here uh, next Sunday morning. There are some bags in the back uh, under the little table there. Get those out. And those may help you. If you take those with you, you can take those shopping, fill those up, or fill up the bag, bring it back, and then uh, empty it and go back and get some more uh, later down the road. Uh, Also, on Wednesday night of this week, the Boys Club is hosting a testimony night. And uh, the boys have uh, been working on writing some testimonies of stories where they've seen God at work in their lives and in the lives of people who are close to them. And uh, they would love to have uh, us come and to hear what God is doing in their lives. And so that will be this Wednesday night at 6.30. And you see information in the bulletin about that. We are also uh, entering into the last week of our prayer vigil. And we've spent almost two weeks of praying. And we've heard some really great reports from people, good things happening. And I w- we've had some gaps as we've gone along. But it's not about being perfect. It's about having us pray uh, more than normal. And we're certainly doing that. But it would be awesome if this week... We could fill up all the times, uh, the morning, the evening, the afternoons, and those late night hours as well. And so if you haven't yet uh, been a part of the prayer vigil, let me encourage you to sign up and uh, pick a, a time and a day. And you can do that in any of the four years back here or in the C foyer or anywhere. Uh, you have a computer access or just call the church office. We'll help you with that. If you have come... Think about coming again. If you're like me, uh, I've sort of felt like I haven't been able to experience all the things in the prayer room, even though I've been a couple of three times uh, coming to pray. So let, I encourage you to, to uh, engage in this opportunity to pray as a church as we join our hearts and our voices together in prayer to God. 
We're going to ask the ushers to come now and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
and agreeing together in our prayers that we come to this time of corporate prayer. As we pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers or the prayers, your prayers for others, please come and join me. Gracious Father, we thank you today for all that you've done in our lives, for all that you've done in this world, for being our loving Father. This morning, we come and ask for your grace in each one of our lives. For some of us today, the the struggle is grief. We ask for your comforting presence. For some today, it is an issue of health. And we pray for your healing grace, your healing power upon all who are on our minds and hearts today. We think especially of Calvin and Laurel Buker and Warren Woolsey. For Bill Getty and Phil Muker, for Ted Hopkins and Evelyn Heil, and for Alice Brown and Mike Raybuck, for Jill Tyson and Bruce Brenneman, we pray for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Dick Gould, for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others who may be on our hearts today. And we ask for your healing grace in each of them. Father, we We think today not only of ourselves, but of the larger world. This morning we are filled with grief and pain and quite frankly, anger at what we have watched develop in Paris this week. Father, we pray that you will You will comfort all who are grieving from this attack. We pray that you will heal all who are struggling with pain and injury. Father, we pray that in your grace and mercy, you would bring an end to terrorism and violence and war. Give to the leaders of the nations of the world wisdom in the best way to respond, not in a spirit of vengeance, but in a spirit of protection, in a spirit of justice that might resemble your own heart. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who face persecution and opposition. I think especially of the Christians in the Middle East, places that have been great centers of the faith through the years and now face great persecution. People have become refugees and displaced. Father, we pray for your grace among these people who are struggling to find home and 
finding the resources of life that they need. We pray that you will work miraculously. Lord, help us to, to be open to how you might want to use us as a, as a means of helping even a few. Father, we pray for Chris and Corey Thede in Haiti. Pray for the, the process of this adoption and ask that you would work out the details of that. We pray for the nation of Haiti that is facing unrest and difficulties. We pray, Lord, that you will bring about your mercy and your grace upon this nation of people that you dearly love. Father, we pray for the ministries of our church. And we think especially today of our Sunday school ministry. We thank you for every teacher, every helper, every student involved in Sunday school. We pray that this will be an amazing time of learning and interaction and and bonding our lives together. We pray, Father, that you you will use this ministry to teach us the faith and to ground us deeper and deeper in our walk with you and in our relationship with each other. Father, we also today pray for the Fillmore Wesleyan Church. We thank you for what you're doing for them and for the the great things that they have seen happening, for recent ministries and outreach where they saw new people coming to the church. And we pray that you will continue to bless their ministry. Bless Pastor Bill and others on their staff. Give to them all that they need to minister your grace and mercy and your truth to the ministries of the church. We pray that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing upon all that they do. Father, as we come to the last week of this prayer vigil, we pray that you will continue to work miraculously. Continue to work in our lives as we open our hearts to you in prayer. And as we move into this last week, we pray that you will nudge us and prompt us about involvement. Spending this time with you, listening to you. And engaging you in ways that we might not otherwise do. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for all the ways in which you are at work in this church, in this community, in the wider communities in this world. We offer our prayers to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, coming King. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Following the reading, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. 
Today's scripture is from Acts chapters 25 and 26. The next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Governor Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he'd done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Picking up at verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Oh, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Please stand and join us as we sing. Brothers, let us come together. to
Please be seated. When we're offended and hurt and opposed, the most natural thing in the world is to want to do unto others as they have done unto us. Right? I mean, I think one of the reasons Jesus says this is such an important thing for us to understand is because it is so counterintuitive to how we naturally want to respond. And we've all been there. We've all been in circumstances where we've been offended or we've been hurt. Or maybe we've been, uh, maybe we've been opposed because of a stand that we have taken that we believe is biblical and true. And in those moments, our most natural response, and and typically our default response is to speak to people the way they've spoken to us, to fight back, to strike back. And the question I have for us this morning is, is that what we should do? In theory... We probably say no, but in practice, that's a whole different thing sometimes, isn't it? At least that's my experience. I've been thinking about this as I've been reading through this section of Acts. And actually what we should have done today was read Acts 24, 25, and 26, but then we wouldn't have been able to do anything else. So we, we didn't read all of that, and as we're reading the scripture, I'm thinking there's a lot left out here. So let me just help set the context for us real quickly. Paul, had, after returning from a missionary journey, he went to Jerusalem. He was in the temple, and uh, the religious leaders there saw him. They, they had him arrested. They make, made all kinds of false accusations against him, and they brought him before the Roman uh, officials. And they want Paul executed. But they're having a hard time convincing the Roman officials that he deserves execution because the only thing they can think of, they say he's been stirring up trouble, but there's no proof of, proof of that. They say that he is a menace to the Roman uh, Empire, but they have no proof of that. So then they come down to, well, he desecrated the temple, but again, they have no proof of that. They have no proof of anything, any of the accusations they make against Paul. And yet here he stands, he's been arrested and left in prison for at least up to two years, waiting for something to happen. And he continues to wait as the story goes along. Everything against him, every accusation against him is false. And what intrigues me as I read through the story is, here Paul stands against people who are pagan, idolatrous leaders of government that is completely opposed to the kingdom of God. How does he respond? How does he react? What does he do? In my mind, this is the perfect opportunity for Paul to take them to task, for Paul to rain down, call down God's judgment upon them, for Paul to to communicate judgment and to communicate the justice of God on these people, both the religious folks who are falsely accusing him and the Roman leaders who are letting it happen. 
And I read through this story, and that's not what I hear him doing. Paul's response is respectful, even somewhat gentle. As he he defends himself, he argues his case, he makes clear to them that all the accusations are untrue. But he does it in a way that, quite frankly, doesn't seem natural to how we tend to respond in situations like that. And I think that's what's caught my attention as I read this passage. Paul has an opportunity to say, may God's judgment come upon you who are falsely accusing me and who are undermining the gospel, but he doesn't. Even as he stands for the truth, and he does stand for the truth, both for himself and for the gospel as a whole, he does so and he communicates in a spirit of sensitivity and respect. And I've been thinking a lot about that and how we, particularly in the West and even more particularly in North America, respond when we're opposed and offended and hurts in general and because of our faith. I think there is something here that that we need to see. Because we're all going to be offended. We're all going to be opposed. We live, Jesus says, if you're my disciples, they hated me, they're going to hate you. If you're a human being, you're going to be hurt. We're going to be offended. People are going to do things that upset us and sometimes hurt us deeply. How are we going to respond? Is there a difference between the way Christians respond and people who are not Christians? And I think in those moments, what I hear Paul saying to us in a roundabout way is, be careful how we communicate. He writes to the Corinthians in Chapter 10, he says to the Corinthians, he writes these words. Find it here. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to God's church, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, there are people who think Paul can be kind of harsh. And yet he's saying, don't offend people by what you say. Now, Paul is not saying, don't speak hard truth, don't stand up for the truth. He's not saying that at all. He's simply remembering what Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 12, where he says, when the day of judgment comes, we're all going to be held responsible for the careless words that we speak. And I think that is not just the actual words we say, but how we say them. You know, we can say, we can say something that by themselves, if you read it on a page, it sounds pretty innocuous. But our tone of voice, our body language, our eyes, we can communicate a lot through that. And Paul is warning the church to be careful about how we communicate. Again, does that mean we don't speak the truth? Not at all. We speak the truth. We we are committed to the truth. We stand up for the truth. It's just a question of how we go about doing that. 
how we communicate the truth. I think one of the things that, that sometimes, it, it seems to me at least, that we get backwards is that when I read the, the New Testament, and actually when I read a lot of the Old Testament as well, but particularly the New Testament, you think about Jesus and even Paul. Most of their confrontational comments are made to people who, are, who make claims about following God, not, about peop- not to people who don't. And it seems to me that often in the church, we are, we are less confrontational with each other, and we are more confrontational about people who are outside the walls of the church. And it's as though we think that we want people who are not connected to Christ to live as if they're connected to Christ. And to act as if they're connected to Christ. And we expect people who are not, who have no relationship to Christ to think and act and speak as if they do. And in the course of that, we sort of have a tendency to maybe lose a little bit of our gentleness. I, I read years ago a story about E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones is, is a, one, of, one of my heroes. I... I I've read a lot of his books. I've listened to some of his sermons. He was a great man of God, a missionary statesman in India for years. Had great influence there. He started a, a movement of Christian ashrams, taking a, what would the Hindus would do and, and bringing about a Christian perspective to it, and not just in India, but all over the country and even this world. And he, and he, was, a, he was a great influence on many, many people. And he, there was a man he had supported his ministry for a number of years, but for a number of reasons couldn't do that anymore. And because of that, the man got angry at him, and, and he publicly rebuked E. Stanley Jones and said all kinds of, of not just unkind, but untrue things about him. And E. Stanley, hearing this and seeing this, sat down and decided, well, I'm going to write a reply. And it was the kind of letter that you sometimes you enjoy writing, you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, it's really coming out of me now. I'm really getting it going here. And, and he wrote this letter, and he had enough foresight, and probably because in his spirit he had a feeling that this was not a good thing, he sent it to some of the other leaders of the Ashram movement and said, tell me what you think. And they read it, and they sent it back to him, and they wrote three words across the top. Not sufficiently redemptive. And he tore it up and threw it away. You know, it, it strikes me that this is one of the things about the electronic age in which we live. You know, 30, 40, obviously many, many years before that, if you were going to sit down and write a response to someone like that, you, it took a little time. You'd pull out a piece of paper, get a pen, maybe a typewriter. You write it out. And then when you're done, you've got to find an envelope, you've got to fold it up, put it in the envelope, seal it, you've got to, you have to address it, you've got to find a stamp, and then you've got to get it to the post office. And often, in the course of that time, we've kind of come to our senses a little bit about what we're writing. But now, all you have to do is click new email, type in an address, write your thing, and click send. And in a few seconds, it's gone. Milliseconds, it's gone. 
And I think there is something about that process that maybe doesn't give us quite the time to think about what it is we're writing and saying and how we're writing it and how we're saying it. Because I often find that... Stand here. Uh, once we think about things a little bit, we, um, we have a tendency to change our mind. We give it some space. We give it some time. And that's helpful to us to just sort of pull back a little bit. Because when we read the scriptures, there is a sense in which how we communicate, even how we correct and confront, which is a part of loving, But we do it in the spirit of love. We do it in the spirit of respect and patience and humility. And when I read this from Paul, one of the things that comes through here is he has great respect for people that quite frankly don't really deserve respect. There's nothing they're doing that's godly, nothing they're doing that that would would garner support from, from the Christians except the fact that they're in positions of authority, and as Paul writes and as Peter writes, we are to respect people in positions of authority. And I think at the heart of what it means to communicate as the church is a spirit of of humility. Humility that's patient, that's loving, respectful. We listen. I'm convinced that listening is one of the most profound things we do as the church and how we communicate. Someone was telling me recently about an, a situation in which their, their child was, uh, was deeply hurt by another adult. And when they heard the story, of course, the natural adult response is, they're going to wish they hadn't done that. Right? I mean, we all have that sense of protecting our children and, and going after people who hurt our children. And so they were all geared up to have this conversation. And fortunately, they took some time to think and to pray before the conversation. And they really sensed the Spirit saying, you need to go into this and just listen first. Ask some questions. Find out what's going on. And in the course of that, they did that very same thing. They listened. And as they listened, they discovered that this adult was going through some really hard things in their life. No one knew about. They were stressed and overwrought. And they were, they were dealing with some very heavy issues. And they just happened to take it out on that child, unfortunately. And they, this, this parent was still able to communicate how that was really not the right thing to do. But they were able to do so in a way that was far more redemptive than it would have been. And they walked away with a relationship that is going to be ongoing. And not just speaking what's on their mind and now not just have one hurt person, they now have two hurt people. And I was so impressed by that because I know there are times where, you know, I just want to jump in and I just want to say things and I want to do things. And I'm coming to see that, that there, is, there is a place for confrontation. That's loving people. But the spirit of the confrontation is so important.
Peter writes in, his, in the third chapter of his letter. He says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle, respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. That's a, that's a phrase Paul uses twice here in this section, this passage of Scripture. In chapter 24, he says to Agrippa and Festus, I have always tried to live with my conscience clear. And it's the same thing he says to the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. I've always tried to live with my conscience clear. And I think we tend to interpret that as I'm not doing sin. And I think he does mean that, but I also think he means... He implies, I'm trying to respond. I'm trying to communicate in a way that I can walk away from our encounter feeling as if I've done everything I know to do to keep my conscience clear. It's the spirit as much as it is the words. That sense of humility that we find in Jesus As Paul describes him in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. I think sometimes in my mind, at least, I have this argument that says, I'm right. And if I'm right, I can say what I want to say because after all, I'm right. As I read, as I continue to read this passage and read Paul's response, I've been more and more convicted that being right is important, but that acting right and speaking right is integral to being right. And I've been convicted about that. Convicted about a, you know, sometimes a, a condescending spirit with people who I disagree with. Sometimes just lashing out in anger with people who have hurt me. Maybe ignoring people who I think aren't worthy of my time. I hear Paul in this situation being so kind and gentle and respectful, even as he speaks the truth. And Paul is right, and they are wrong. There is no doubt about that. There is no argument when you read this passage that Paul is the innocent one in the room. Paul is the one in the room who's right. He's maybe the only one in the room who's right. And yet, he's the one with the gentle, respectful spirit. I think Paul understands that when we come into these situations, this is the moment when we can show people what it looks like to be Christian as opposed to not be Christian. In these moments, we have an opportunity for people to see a little glimpse into what being a Christian brings to our conversations and these difficult circumstances. I think a lot of it comes down to what's our goal? What's our purpose for communicating? Is our purpose so that people know we're right? Or is our purpose hopefully to help people see the transforming grace of God and 
want that in their life. If our goal is to be right, then we say what we want, do what we want, and prove our case. If our goal is transformation, then we think about the whole thing differently. How we interact with people and what we say and how we say it and our body language and and everything about who we are. We're concerned about all of that because it's not just about being right. It's because we want, we're less concerned about people knowing we're right. We're more concerned, much more concerned that people might see Jesus in us and maybe open their heart to him. When you come to the end of this section and Paul says to, to uh, he's you know, declaring his, the, the gospel to them and Agrippa says, wait a minute, Paul, you, do you think in this short time you can, you can convince me to be a Christian? And I love Paul's response. Short time, long time, whatever. I just want you to have what I have. I want you to know Jesus the way I know Jesus. And I love what he sticks on the end, except for these chains. I mean, you think that's sort of a throwaway line, but there's something about that that's significant. Because a part of me would want to say to them, you know, what I really want is for you guys to trade places with me. What I really want is for you guys to sit here and change in the stocks and see how you respond. He says, no, I don't, I don't want you to experience what I'm experiencing other than to know Christ. I want you to know the joy of Christ and the, and the grace of Christ in your life and the love of Christ. And I want you to know the blessing of Christ on your life as I've experienced it in mine. Which is an odd thing for a prisoner to say. But it's because Paul loves them, cares for them. He's more concerned about them knowing Christ than about being right, proving himself right. And I think that's really what it boils down to for all of us. I think one of the most profound images of this I've seen is the story of Norma McCorvey. If you're like me, I had never heard of Norma McCorvey. I didn't know who that was until a few years ago and discovered that she was the defendant in the 1973 case Roe v. Wade, the whole case about abortion. She was the defendant that was used to eventually bring about the the freedom to, to do abortions in America. And Norma McCorvey was a... I don't know, she, she was described as a, a person who could um, swear more than anybody else in the room, who could outdrink anybody in the bar, who, uh, who was filled with passion. And she actually said it was her whole life to promote abortion in this country. And she worked at various abortion clinics and she eventually... She lived in Texas, and she worked at a clinic in Dallas. And one day in this little strip mall where the clinic was located, a clinic that performed abortions there, next door moved in a group from Operation Rescue, which this was a number of years back. They were the most vocal critics of abortion in America. And uh, they were out front picketing clinics and doing all kinds of public things to try to bring about an end to this. As you can well imagine, putting these two groups side by side didn't go real well. 
It was a daily occurrence that the police, Dallas police, would arrive and try to break up their yelling and screaming and, and picketing and going after each other day after day after day. And it just made Norma more and more angry, more and more resolved about her position. Until she met a little seven-year-old girl named Emily. Emily was the daughter of one of the Operation Rescue workers. And Emily took a liking to Norma, despite everything about her. And she would wait outside for Norma to come, and she would talk to her, and she would hug her. And, and she would talk to her about how she thought abortion was wrong. But she kept loving Norma, and hugging Norma, and embracing Norma. And befriending Norma. And eventually got to the point where Norma would come to the clinic even if she wasn't working because she wanted another hug from Emily. And she wanted to spend time with this little girl. And then one day Emily said to her, Miss Norma, it would be so cool if you came to church with us. Well, she didn't want to go to church with them. And she was, but she didn't want to disappoint little Emily. So she made up some excuse. And she kept making up excuses. And every day, little Emily would say to her, Miss Norma, it would be so cool if you would come to church with us. And finally, she wore Norma down. And she finally, more to just stop her bugging her, more than anything else, she said, okay, she would go. And they went to pick her up on Sunday morning, and Emily's mom wasn't sure she'd go, but there she was, dressed, ready. And they went to church, and that morning, through that worship service, Norma McCorvey opened her heart to Jesus. What fighting and yelling and all of that couldn't do, a little girl's affection and kindness and honesty broke down walls. And it's hard for us because it's a long-term approach. It's a long-view approach. We often don't see immediate results. But it does seem to be the way of Jesus and the way of Paul and the way of Peter and the way of the church through history. And this is not, I'm not saying we don't stand up for the truth. Oh, it's our calling to stand up for the truth. It's just how we do that. How we communicate that. And I'm convinced that this brings us back to prayer. Because in prayer, we have the opportunity to spend time with God so that he can convict us and challenge us and speak into our hearts and help us and encourage us and soften us and give us the heart of Jesus. That in our busy lives and in our daily routines, we simply find it difficult to, sit, to, to, to come back and to let Jesus speak into our lives. Someone said to me this week, as I've been listening to all these sermons, it struck me that really the whole reason for the prayer vigil, the whole reason for talking about prayer is not so that God will answer our prayers. The whole reason for this is that we believe prayer is the answer. And they're right. That's it. We believe that things happen in prayer that don't happen other ways. 
And one of the things that happens when we pray is that God begins to help us see what he, how he wants us to communicate, what he wants us to say and how he wants us to say it, and what he wants us to be for each other and for this world that needs to see Jesus. I am continually astounded as I read these passages about Paul at his ability to, to communicate in a, in a spirit of respect and truth, in gentleness and honesty. And I am praying that God will continue to give me that spirit and that he will give it to us. Holy Father, we pray that your grace and mercy will be upon us today. Help us to not just speak the truth, as important as that is, and to believe the truth, as important as that is, but help us to communicate in a way that looks like Jesus, like your servant Paul and Peter. Give us that grace. We pray this through the Spirit of Christ. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.